Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's December 8th and this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. I'm Matthew Hells-Barbie and as always, I'm here with Austin Knight. How are you doing, Austin? Uh, I'm all right, Matt. I've uh, It's been an odd week. I've managed to completely automate away my job with this thing called ChatGPT. I've been doing it for years, Austin. I've been doing it for years. <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I turn up to meetings, I have pre-recorded, like, my Dali, like, uh, image, just <laughs> pretends I'm there, moves my mouth, and then it plays from a script. It's honestly the, the only way I've ever been able to get promoted. It's been great. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, that feeling, that realization that you no longer do anything or have a purpose. And, you know, the thing is, Matt, uh, I got to be real. As soon as I can hook GPT up to this microphone, you're no longer going to have a co-host, dude. <laughs> well, you, Austin, you, you laugh, but you're, you're chatting to AI right now, buddy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Before we get sucked into a rabbit hole of AI, uh, and I'm sure many of you listening have been down the rabbit hole of uh, <laughs> chat GPT, um, let's, let's jump into one of the many many stories that uh, we've we've got today. But I think in particular, we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive back into FTX. I know, I know, we've, we've <laughs> covered FTX a lot, but I think there are some really important pieces that have come to light in here. And then uh, I'm going to be diving into the battle between Apple and crypto. Ooh, so, yeah, I know, it's a big one. It's a big one. And, uh, you know, we... We hope that the same story doesn't play out as it usually does. But let's jump into our first story of the day. FTX is back on the podcast. I know, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself, but there's more <laughs> There's more that we have to talk about. And I think that you all are going to find this super interesting because it's sort of like an, an excellent capstone piece to this entire saga, at least as far as it has unfolded thus far. Um, there was an excellent landmark article written by David Z. Morris, who is Coindesk's chief insights columnist. We will link to it in the description. I'm going to tweet it out as well. Please read this. I'm going to go through sort of the cliff notes of the article in this section, but it's way it's like way more detailed than I'm going to be able to get in uh, to here on the podcast. The title of it is FTX's collapse was a crime, not an accident. So I'm going to go through that, but there's also some other stuff related to this that I want to talk through that will basically take a look at what the crimes were that were committed because you've probably heard things from like multiple different piecemeal um, vectors and, and angles about the crimes committed, but I don't think we've ever really been totally clear in aggregate um, what all crimes were committed that, that we are aware of thus far with the collapse of FTX. Before we do that though, I want to do a little bit of a deep dive on terminology uh, because I think that we've, we've been seeing um, a, a, a shift, I would say, in the terminology that is being used around SBF and the FTX collapse. And I think it's a little bit subconscious or under the radar for us, uh, but it, it creates uh, shifts in perception about what happened and 
what who the characters are that were at play in this. So the first term that I want to talk about is one that you've probably heard a lot in referring to what happened with FTX, which is bank run or run on the bank. And uh, David Morris does address this in his article as well. I'm going to build on it a bit. I think that the problem with, with the concept of a bank run or run on the bank as a way to describe what happened here is that it implies that this is not SBF's fault, that he had low agency in the problem. It's something that's precedented. It's something that's happened mm-hmm. before, right? We're all familiar with, like, banks have had runs happen on them. Um, and, and the thing is, banks in general are perceived to be good actors that have had bad things happen to them, like, you know, a, de- a Great Depression or something like that. And it creates a bank run. And that's why we have the FDIC and you know, that that deflects blame from the, the bank or from, in this case, FTX and SBF. But the thing is, this is a total mischaracterization of the events. A bank run did not happen here. It wasn't a bank run that caused this. FTX is not a bank. And SBF right. himself has repeatedly insisted that FTX was simply over leveraged and disorganized. He himself is not even using bank run terminology. So I think when we hear that type of term, it's something to be skeptical of, certainly. Remember, banks can be hit by bank runs because they're in the business of lending customer funds out to generate returns. So they can experience these short-term cash crunches if like everybody decides to withdraw at the same time without there really being any long-term issue, especially because of like how they are structured. FTX is not structured in the same way. FTX and crypto exchanges are not banks. They do not and should not do bank-style lending. And a a surge of withdrawals should not create a liquidity crisis for them, okay? No, it's really important, right? I think that piece that you're talking about is really important because, you know, banks, unlike exchanges, right? Like this is a market uh, that, uh, that FTX runs, they have to hold a, a complete yes. kind of backing one-to-one of the funds that are being traded across their exchange. Banks, <laughs> outside of popular belief here, do not have to do that and rarely ever hold uh, even anywhere near one-to-one in their actual like branches. So this is why it will often take several days. If you've ever tried to actually take out a large or even medium-sized amount of cash. Like if you go to the the bank and just ask for 100K in cash, they'll say, okay, that'll be ready for you in like seven to 10 days. You, you, yeah. you just can't do it, right? Like, And I think this is important because, yeah, what you're saying here, Austin, is like, you know, a bank run, it, it, it implies and, well, it's explicit. It's blaming market dynamics and the consumers. Exactly. Uh, for for something. Yes, exactly. And the thing is, you can say, oh, what, you know, FTX was like based in the freaking Bahamas. Like it's not even a U.S. entity. Like, you know, what did people expect? FTX had explicitly and specifically promised its customers, the links are still there, that it would never lend out or otherwise use their crypto. Okay. It its promise was that it would always keep the crypto in the exchange and thus a surge of withdrawals would not create a liquidity crisis. And it did exactly the opposite of that. So that's the first one. Bank run, that to me is a like a problematic way to describe this because it sets 
a it's a mischaracterization of what actually happened. And I'm not the type of person to be pedantic with terms, but like yeah. this is this is one of those that like actually does kind of matter because there is a huge push to rewrite the story of of what happened and mischaracterize how these events unfold. Another of which is this use of of the phrase rug pull or backstabbing by CZ in particular, right? You're hearing a lot of people saying like, oh yeah, man, CZ really rug pulled SBF when he put out that tweet, you know, saying that he was going to liquidate his FTT and everything like that. Again, this implies that Sam was victimized by CZ, okay? Let's be clear. CZ did not victimize Sam. All that CZ did was withdraw his rightful funds from FTX, and he mentioned that he was going to do so publicly, okay? The part where Mm -hmm. he mentioned that he was doing so publicly, there could be an argument made that this was maybe a bit strategic, but by definition, this is not a rug pull, and it wasn't responsible for the collapse. I agree. The systemic problems that were exposed from what was still a relatively small move by CZ. Like, yeah. When we're talking about this, like they were unwinding, yeah, like uh, a few hundred million in liquidity and FTT token. That should not be moving a multi-billion-dollar exchange, right? Like that—that—that yeah. that, that is clearly something much. There's much more at play here. Absolutely, and let's not forget, it actually wasn't CZ that pushed the first domino. It was a CoinDesk report that yep. first raised eyebrows about FTX. It's that famous CoinDesk report about uh, holes and questions in FTX's balance sheet, which we'll come back to later. So to be clear, if F- SBF and FTX weren't committing fraud, they wouldn't have collapsed. And there's nothing that CZ could have done with his tweet or his withdrawal of FTT that would have caused the collapse. The withdrawal would have been fulfilled just fine. And and what this means is that SBF and FTX alone are responsible for this. You can't say that it's CZ or his customers or market dynamics as we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing to, to just be clear on. And to dive into this a little bit more, I want to talk about culpability in this whole thing, because I think that there's a lot of, a, a lot of different fingers being pointed in different directions. Investors and their lack of due diligence, regulators and the media are undoubtedly culpable in this collapse. That's my opinion, but I I think that there's plenty of evidence to support this. Obviously, investors weren't doing enough or any due diligence in a lot of cases. Regulators completely failed, even with FTX US and with the offshore entity. But the media is an especially interesting one because the media is still covering for SBF. And this is something that David mentions in his article, right? We had this New York Times interview that was kind of framing FTX's collapse as the result of mismanagement rather than malfeasance. And SBF was literally applauded. I I know that, Matt, you and I turned into this, tuned into this rather. Um, he was applauded at the New York Times Deal Book Summit last week after, you know, for all of his courage with, with being so open and honest about, you know, his role in FTX. And it's like, you're applauding somebody that literally stole billions of dollars. The, of this is the Stockholm funds. syndrome that I was talking about in yeah. that episode, where it's just like, you know, we, we go through these stages of like, you know, the disbelief that this has happened then realization of like, wow, this person has deceived us and has bad motives and has clearly been involved in gross wrongdoing, right? Exactly. And then, oh, 
But now they are really sorry and they're going to make a difference. And now they're back to being the good guy again. It's like, it's just unbelievable to me that the speed at which this has happened with SBF. And it's, I, yeah. it, it, it's, it's very bizarre to me and disconcerting. It is. And it's one of those things where I think you and I have experienced this a couple of times. We've, we've worked at companies that have been in the press a lot. When, when you're really, really close to something and you have intimate knowledge of the facts and the events and how it unfolded or, or how that thing operates, and then you see the press coverage of it, it's sort of like a peek behind the curtain where you realize like, oh, wait, they are completely full of shit. Yeah. And you, you start to think like, are they this full of shit on the things that I don't have intimate knowledge of as well? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it's just bizarre. There, there was also a Wall Street Journal article, of course, which we've covered that sort of, you know, bemoaned the loss of donations from FTX, which is kind of trying to make <laughs> SBF look like a philanthropist, which I think is really, really gross. More, um, more, more like a bank robber, right? Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is like saying, ah, oh, damn, like, and like bemoaning kind of like John Dillinger or someone else and being like, ah, <laughs> damn, all that money that that person was stealing. Ah, they could have solved famine with that. It's like, well, or, or how about this? They don't steal the money and uh, we go through regular kind of uh, channels to stimulate yeah. charitable donations. It, that is like the biggest stretch I have ever seen uh, in particular. That one made me like nearly spit out my coffee from the yeah. Journal. Yeah, that one was wild. Um, and then Matthew Iglesias, the co-founder of Vox, was kind of whitewashing his entanglements with SBF. Um, by talking about how he was like helping Democrats in the 2020 elections and s- sidestepping the likelihood that actually this money was kind of embezzled, um, which is yeah. ju- it's, so anyway, it's just bizarre to see the way that the media is treating this. I think they're the only culpable party that hasn't uh, stepped back and admitted their the, the wrongdoing and their their role and the crimes that SBF mm-hmm. committed and instead are actually doing the exact opposite and are continuing to worsen the situation by covering from him. And of course I'm painting with broad strokes here. This is not the whole media. I mean, the entire topic of this section is an article written on Coindesk, right? Which is fabulous yeah. and actually gets to the core of this. It's just certain corners of the media, especially the traditional media that I think are making themselves look untrustworthy here at best. Um, I but think in particular, in, in particular in the US uh, is what, yes. I've, what I've definitely noticed because when you kind of look at this through the lens of uh, mainstream media outside of the US, I, I really haven't seen anything positive, like huge piece in The Economist uh, that really mm-hmm. was damning, The Financial Times, uh, very yeah. damning, BBC, very damning, like everything has been that. And, you know, it, it further heightens like the, I guess, like the undertones of how interlinked clearly uh, Mm -hmm. without getting like my tinfoil hat on here, but like, you know, huge political donations, the entanglement of media in amongst all of that and clearly like bad motives uh, that that are all in place. It's just very, it's, I haven't seen it quite so transparently presented as I have with, this case with uh, Sam Bankman Freed in the yeah. media, where it's just so obviously <laughs> very, very biased. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you're totally right. And yes, the juxtaposition of the U.S. coverage versus the international coverage of this is very telling, I think. Uh, I mean, there were we, we've seen reports of entire publications that were being bankrolled by SBF um, mm. and playbooks that were being used to buy media favor, et cetera, et cetera. So, but with all of that said, despite all of this culpability, I want to be clear, the ultimate responsibility for FTX's collapse and fraud lies only with one person and one person alone, and that is SBF. It's certainly not CZ. It's certainly not FTX's customers, and it's not the bear market. That's a bullshit excuse. Yeah. It's SBF. This this fraud was, was being committed regardless of the bear market, which is also something interesting that we can get into here. So let's be clear about what happened, because I think that the best way to understand the culpability here is to dive into the crimes themselves and the roles that different individuals played in, in these alleged crimes. So first off, customer funds, it looks like were sent to Alameda Research. Then they were gambled away <laughs> without, <laughs> without customers knowing this. Okay. So that doesn't look good. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, nobody likes to hear that at a high level. That's the crime that was committed. This is theft at a nearly unprecedented scale. We're talking about potentially up to 1 million impacted customers, according to the bankruptcy documents. So what what were the crimes that appear to have been committed by SBF and FTX? We're going to break this down. The first of which we're going to loosely label, and this is all being pulled from that excellent article that I mentioned earlier that was written on Coinbase by David Morris. Um, the first one that is outlined is the Alameda connection. And this is one that we've talked about a lot, but there's some new details that are starting to surface here that I think are really interesting. So SBF described FTX and Alameda as being, quote, wholly separate entities. And he even stepped down as the CEO of Alameda in 2019 to prove that they were fully separate as an act of, of good faith. But it, it's clear that the ties remain between the two. Executives at FTX and Alameda were working out of the same penthouse in the Bahamas. Um, I, I, I think that this has been like way over overplayed and I don't want to make too big of a deal out of it, but it is true that SBF and Caroline, the CEO that was appointed to Alameda were romantically involved as well. So there were some ties there. It yeah. looks like as much as $10 billion in user funds were sent between FTX and Alameda or from FTX to Alameda. And it's incredible, isn't it? Oh, oh my gosh. I mean, that is an ungodly amount of money. And and the thing is, like, think about this. This is not like huge. It's not just huge investments from like venture capital funds that have billions and billions of dollars. Like this is, you know, $100,000, $10,000, $1,000. That means everything to literal individuals among those 1 million customers that were mm -hmm. affected. So these are people's lives. That, that we're talking about, their financial livelihood, right? Um, On-chain analysis found that the bulk of the movements, though, from FTX to Alameda, and this is what I'm talking about when I said that it's not just about the bear market, the bulk of those movements from FTX to Alameda took place in late 2021. Mm. 21, not 22, Okay. The bankruptcy filings revealed that FTX and Alameda actually lost $3.7 billion in 2021. Again, not 22, 21. That's before the bear market. This is Incredible. crazy. 
right? So think about this, Matt. Terra, Luna, Three Arrows Capital, Voyager D Digital, all of those collapses happened in the summer of 22. This means that FTX and Alameda may have been stealing funds long before those crises. Yep. And I think like, like I, the big thing that they've been pushing, right, in amongst the many, many narratives that have been coming out of the SBF slash FTX camp, which has been, you know, the three arrows capital, like crash really impacted the market and hurt us, hurt everyone. We tried to kind of save the day. It's just, you know, it's just not true. Sure, that hurt the market. Sure, it didn't make things any easier. It's irrespective of that. You have fundamentally exactly. got a flawed business model. You have committed financial fraud and you have created your own cracks in the uh, in, in the floor for you to fall down, right? Like this, this isn't on anyone else. Yep. So that's the first crime. Moving on, I want to talk about the FTT print and these collateralized loans that they were creating. So as we mentioned earlier, customer deposits were being taken from FTX to Alameda. But how was that happening? It looks like they were being converted into FTT tokens, which were those native tokens that were minted by FTX. They're proprietary to FTX. They created and controlled the FTT token and its supply and, and everything related to it. And it looked like they made up a huge portion of the FTX balance sheet. Uh, and that's actually where that initial Coindesk report came from. They noticed that a significant portion of the FTX balance sheet was made up of these FTT tokens. But this was really bizarre because those FTT tokens, they were illiquid, all right? Yeah, they, they but, can't sell those, right? Like, you know, exactly. they're, they're not gonna dump their own token on the market, it'll crash everything. Exactly, but <laughs> still on the balance sheet, they were accounted for at a fictitious market price. So basically a way to think about this is like, I can take all of these customer funds, turn them into FTT tokens, send them over to Alameda. Alameda can take that money and invest it in like super risky stuff like a hedge fund would do. And then I can take as many FTT tokens, print as many of them as I want and put them on the balance sheet and claim that they are the same amount of money that I just transferred or more and thus inflate the, the, the value and the holdings of my company on paper. Um, and it gets even worse because it's believed that the FTT tokens were not just used on the balance sheet and for transactions, but they were used as collateral for loans, including loans of customer funds from FTX to Alameda. So that's sort of this is that. This is basically like, you know, th this is the equivalent of like the subprime mortgage kind of crisis where you take like really bad debt use it again for like collateral and like package this thing up. And yeah, they didn't package up as a specific derivative in the same way, but it, it, the, all of it's the same. You're making up money, printing it yourself, giving it an arbitrary value, largely manipulating the market through kind of even just from like converting some of these customer deposits into FTT. That's going to help with FTT token price artificially. That then again means you can more borrow more real assets, but it's it's all rotten and it just yeah. creates an enormous domino effect on all of this. It's it's yep. incredible. Yeah, and I mean subprime mortgage crisis. You also get comparisons to Enron that are coming yeah. out of yeah. this very similar situation, and 
let's not forget those executives served 12 years in prison, um, mm-hmm. which is, in my opinion, a, a pretty light sentence for what they did. Yeah. But still, it's a it's so far a heavier sentence than uh, SBF has had brought against him. We'll, we'll see what ends up happening in the long run. Um, so that's the second crime. Let's move on to the third crime. Alameda's margin liquidation exemption. We'll go through this one really quickly, but it is interesting. So it turns out Alameda Research had a special status as a user on FTX, and this granted them a secret exemption from the platform's liquidation and margin trading rules. Why is this important? Basically, it gave Alameda huge advantages while exposing other FTX users to huge hidden risks. So Alameda effectively could keep losing positions open until they turned around well, with their, their investments, right? They're keeping their investment positions open until they turned around, not being um, exposed to margin calls or uh, liquidation events. Uh, but competing users on the platform, they were exposed to, uh, to being closed out. This so, is the worst one for me of everything. Yeah. Uh, I think this is just straight up, uh, like n- not even trying to hide it, market manipulation that mm-hmm. completely burns retail. Yes, exactly. They were completely dumping on on the the, the retail investor. They had an un- extremely unfair advantage over them. And what this meant is that Alameda, they were able to lose money on FTX that they weren't uh, able able to pay back. <laughs> and uh, this left a huge hole where customer funds had been. So this is a huge portion of what caused the, the balance sheet issue and the loss of customer funds. And to be clear, this is criminal from multiple angles. So many angles. So many angles. Yeah. Okay. On to crime number four. Alameda was front running FTX listings. So this one, this is just like, to me, I think it should have been obvious uh, that that this was happening. Um, And it, 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 you know, it feels very intuitive that that this would have been going on. But of course, you know, the scrutiny only happens once the dominoes start to fall. But somewhat predictably, Alameda had insider access to information about FTX's plans to list new tokens. So Alameda knew if FTX was going to list a new token on the exchange. And we all know that when new tokens get listed on an exchange like FTX or Binance or Coinbase, it's huge news, right? And then this causes a pump of the token because there's going to be more adoption of it. So if I say, okay, you know, we're going to, uh, you know, start listing token X on, on Coinbase, that means more people are going to be able to buy and sell and transact in token X, and then it's going to have more adoption and it's going to be more valuable as a result. That's a typical market dynamic that we see. So Mm -hmm. Alameda would front run this. They would know, okay, next week we're going to list this token on FTX. They'd buy a bunch of those tokens before they were listed, and then they would sell them after the listing bump happened. Um, So basically, again- 101 on if you want to commit a white collar crime that gets serious jail time. You go down and do insider yeah. trading. If this can be proved exactly. in a in a court, this this is the serious like this is the serious one for me. It's like the most obvious and like you look at most of like the biggest white collar crimes. They nearly always involve some kind of level of insider trading. Yes, exactly. This is a big crime, and you're right. It's akin to insider trading, even if the tokens aren't securities. Uh, you may remember. 
we we covered this a little while back. There was that Open Sea employee and a, oh, yeah. like a, a family member and a friend. I think were also involved in this um, that got charged with wire fraud and insider trading for buying tokens before they were listed on Open Sea. And what happened to them? They're facing up to twenty years in prison just for Yikes. that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So that's but, a pretty serious. Many point. regrets, I imagine, uh, for, for that individual. <laughs> Hope it was worth oh, it. Man. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, on to the next crime. Immense personal loans to executives. So um, FTX and Alameda Research were giving out gigantic loans to executives at FTX. Uh, in fact, the, the totals of these loans r- reportedly were around a total of $4.1 billion in loans. It's going to get you a good boat that well. It's going to get a oh great boat. Oh my gosh. Wow, to think <laughs> that... That that super yacht that Suzu had being built was only a mere fifty million dollars, and we were yeah. freaking out over that at the time. My goodness! I see. I, I saw actually. I think yesterday there was like a story that came out about that uh, fifty-two million super yacht that um, the oh man Securities and Exchange Commission of whichever country it is, maybe it was the SEC of the US or some other, maybe Korea, uh, are now actively trying to uh, kind of repossess the, the, the <laughs> super yacht. So it's finally, it, it might be, uh, you know, sinking uh, as we speak. Yeah. They're going to bring it into their Coast Guard fleet or something? Yeah, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> oh man, what a mess. But um, you know what's wild about these loans that uh, totaled, four uh, again, $4.1 billion in loans from Alameda Research to executives at FTX reportedly. Uh, these these personal loans were most likely unsecured. <laughs> so, Jeez. so there's a whole mess there. And like, okay, just to go over how much money was given to each individual so that y- we can understand the total gravity of this. It looks like SBF received upwards of a billion dollars in personal loans. And then on top of that, $2.3 billion in a loan to an entity called Paperbird, which was uh, an entity that he had a 75% controlling stake of. Um, doesn't this seem, one is wild. Doesn't seem fishy at all. That one. Yeah, you know, Paperbird is an interesting one because it looks like it was yet another third party that assets were shuffled between. We know that there are a bunch of different entities involved. We've talked talked about them over the course of the last couple of weeks, where SPF was basically just uh, shuffling money in in between them to uh, to hide paper trails, to hide funds, to um, pump up the. Uh, the 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 balance sheet on paper and everything like that and and his holdings and it looks like paperbird may have been another one of them and there are a bunch of entanglements there that uh, are going to most likely be coming out over the the course of the next few weeks as we go through these bankruptcy proceedings um, so yeah FBX or SBF had huge personal loans the director of engineering Nishad Singh looks like five hundred forty three million dollars in personal loans were given the out director of engineering. Wait, what? Is this like, uh, was 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 he effectively like the chief product officer, or did they have like a C-suite member? If this is just like a director level individual getting five hundred million, damn, kind of wish I yeah, was. Yeah, that is uh, wild. <laughs> wish I was going in as a an FTX employee with that kind of loan. What is happening here? Like, why <laughs> on earth would any employee? Uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to like find a reason in madness, uh, which is never a good uh, a good thing here, but it is absolutely <laughs> yeah. mind-blowing. 
It is. It's a wild one. Um, we also, it looks like FTX's co-CEO, Ryan Salame, uh, who we don't talk about very often, um, mm. but is obviously involved in this, received uh, somewhere around $55 million in a personal loan as well. So there's a lot to come out there with regards to these personal loans to executives, huge criminal implications if that all turns out to be uh, the case. And then moving on to the next crime, bailouts of entities holding FTT or loans. Remember those bailouts that were happening over the summer for BlockFi, Voyager Digital, et cetera? This is the stuff that caused you know, uh, Coindesk and other entities to refer to SBF as like the JP Morgan of his time, the person saving the, the industry. Yeah. The Robin Hood um, of crypto, I guess, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Like that is actually a bit more accurate because he was in fact stealing from the rich. <laughs> uh, yeah. Unfortunately, he was also stealing from everyone um so <laughs> you, you know uh, yeah i guess you can't have it all um yeah <laughs> well you know what matt there is this awesome interview that has now kind of be- become a bit famous on cnbc's squawk box where sbf danced around the issue of where ftx got the cash for the bailout so it was clear at the time that he didn't want to talk about it and he said that they were bets that may or may not pay off and you and i actually talked about that we like months need. and months ago saying like wow there's like huge risk that they're taking on here like how is this going to pan out um yeah. and how bold that was uh, of course, it, you know, it turns out that at the time he knew that, um, you know, th- this was all uh, on built on shaky ground and that the money wasn't actually there. And in fact, Bloomberg's Matt Levine recently hypothesized that FTX had backstopped BlockFi using FTT, uh, mainly because the bailout uh, would have concealed FTX and Alameda's liabilities that could have been exposed earlier if BlockFi had gone bankrupt at that sooner date over the summer. So mm-hmm. through BlockFi's bankruptcy and all of the filings that would happen there, it would start to unravel the liabilities that FTX and Alameda had. And it looks like they they uh, did that bailout of BlockFi for that reason, and they did it using potentially FTT, which of course, you know, is again, this sort of fake money token yeah. that was being printed. Uh, and then, okay, there's, <laughs> there's one last one that is like really ominous that I want to talk about this last crime, which is what appears to be a secretive purchase of a U.S. bank. Oh, that um, sounds good. That sounds like it lend well. Yep. Yeah. How wild is that? So it looks like Who was like it? Wells Alameda- Fargo? <laughs> Our favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also they're minting that CBDC in New York by FTT. Oh, right. Excellent. I'm glad that we finally got a killer app here uh, in, in crypto. <laughs> I just want to be clear. That last part about Wells Fargo was a joke, even though yeah. I know it's everything is so absurd right now that that could be true. That is not true. That has not happened yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like these yeah. yet. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. Let's talk about this potential secret of purchase of a bank. It looks like Alameda invested $11.5 million into Farmington State Bank. I know oh, big thinking. name. Big name in the banking yeah. scene, that one. Uh, <laughs> it's huge. Yes. Huge bank, yeah. Mm, that household name, Farmington yeah. State Bank. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> you, you will be forgiven for not knowing what Farmington State Bank is because nobody knows what it is because it's super minuscule. And that $11.5 million was more than double the bank's net worth at the time. So that's fishy, right? Yeah. This this type of thing may be illegal in a vacuum, actually. Um, because 
Alameda is a non-U.S. entity and an investing firm, they would have needed to clear a ton of regulatory hurdles before they could do something as insane as acquire a controlling stake and a U.S. bank. But in the broader context of FTX, it becomes purely ominous. Like it, it, this is where it really starts to get scary when you think about like, what if FTX were controlling a, a U.S. bank and what that could have allowed FTX and Alameda to, to or, you know, or rather if Alameda were controlling a U.S. bank and what that could have allowed Alameda and FTX to do and how they could well, have there's, engaged. There's in... the off-ramp and on-ramp, right? The straight straight away into mm-hmm. into fiat and yeah, the, I mean, the systemic risk that that can potentially create. Um, but it, it, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see more. And I'd heard talk about um, exchanges looking at potentially buying up uh, small banks, kind of how like the whole neobank situation has started yeah. to really spin out of. But yeah, in this context, it starts to get really, really strange. And I doubt very much that this was cleared to the level that it should have been. No. Uh, so yeah, you can imagine the 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 risk and uh, how much further things could have gone if if this were allowed to play out. Um, and, and the collapse didn't happen when it did. Uh, in fact, remember, um, you may recall a little while back, the Pakistani-founded Bank for Credit and Commerce International, they tried to buy a U.S. bank and regulators stopped it. And it turned out that BCCI was actually running a giant criminal money laundering scheme. So hmm. there, there is a lot of scrutiny around well, what, purchases. What are they going to do now that we've shut down Tornado Cash? You know, like we gotta buy, we gotta buy some banks. That's a joke. Don't at me on Twitter. Ah, <laughs> uh. uh, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so that's that's a a bit of a dive into the crimes of SBF and FTX as they are implicated to date. Right. There's one last term though that I want to talk about here to wrap this all up, and that is the term kid. Okay. Think about the crimes that we just talked about. These are serious, sophisticated, high-level crimes, okay? They're orchestrated crimes. SBF is not a kid that made some mistakes. He's a 30-year-old man who knew exactly what he was doing, and I resent this characterization of SBF being some some kid that just, oh, you know, I accidentally uh, lost like eight to $10 billion of customer funds. Whoops. You know, a, Austin, a you've, never, ago- you've never had a few too many drinks and bought a US bank. Come on, tell me that. Tell me that. <laughs> oh my gosh, Matt. Think about it. And look, we were guilty of this too. I want to be clear. Yeah. A couple months ago, Sam was being heralded as a genius. Mm-hmm. Sequoia Capital was referring to him as, quote, possibly the f- world's first trillionaire. OK, don't buy the rewriting of his persona here. Yeah. He knew what he was doing. He took credit for what he was doing at the time. He can take credit for it now that the crimes have started to come out. Well, he one, was either one, a genius or he was a criminal mastermind. Like the, 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 there right. isn't anything What's the in difference? between that, I mean... right? You know, yeah, it's very true. Yeah. <laughs> OK, there's one last thing. That, that I want to close this segment out with, which is a question. Where is Alexei Pertsev right now? Matt, do you remember Alexei? I, I do remember 
uh, feel feel a little bit bad about my tornado cash joke now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's correct. Alexi was a lowly developer in the Netherlands working on tornado cash. And when the U.S. government imposed sanctions on tornado cash, they leaned on the Dutch government and the Dutch government arrested Alexi Pertsev. Alexi Pertsev, the lowly developer from Tornado Cash, is in jail in the Netherlands right now. If the United States wanted to extradite SBF and bring charges against him and put him in jail, they could. They could lean on the Bahamas. We have extradition provisions with the Bahamas. They've Mm -hmm. done things like this many, many times before. And right now, instead, what's happening is Maxine Waters is kindly asking SBF to appear in front of Congress if he would so please, since he's been so honest and forthcoming. Somebody give that at, man a round of applause, York- please. Somebody yeah, give him oh a round of applause. <clears throat> what, a, what a great kid. What a great kid. Yeah. So think, <laughs> think about that as you interpret the unraveling of these crimes and the media coverage following it and the actions or inactions of politicians, regulators, prosecutors. I I do think that further action is going to be taken against SBF, but my prediction that he's going to get away with it at least currently still stands. I hope that that doesn't become true, but um, it is clear that justice in this space, at least right now in the case of Alexi, when compared to SBF, is not levied on an even playing field. With that said, for our next story, we've got an interesting dive into the antics that are uh, unraveling between Apple and Coinbase. Matt, with that next. Apple, you know, that tiny little tech company that often plays nicely with others in the industry. They have kind of dropped a bit of a bombshell on the crypto space as a whole, I think. And what this has all come down to is they have blocked the release of Coinbase Wallet's app. And this is all centered around their demand for 30% of the fees generated from the Coinbase Wallet app. Coinbase tweeted out on Friday of last week, I'll quote this, uh, Apple's claim is that gas fees required to send NFTs need to be paid through their in-app purchase system so they can collect 30% of the gas fee. I'm just going to like take a moment to just realize how utterly absurd that statement is, both on a financial level and just on a technology level. This tells me there's a complete lack of understanding if if it's to be believed that that is their actual reasoning. Um, And, you know, they went on to say, for anyone who understands how NFTs and blockchain work, this is clearly not possible. Apple's proprietary in-app purchase system does not support crypto, so we couldn't comply even if we tried. This is akin to Apple trying to take a cut of fees for every email that gets sent over open internet protocols. That's a claim that I have no uh, I have no doubt that they would love to 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 charge and get a cut of fees off. But you know this this for me is this is a really significant move from Apple and could begin a wave 
of app store bans on crypto apps, which as Coinbase have kind of came out, I've seen more and more Web3 companies coming out and saying the, the challenges that they they have been having with Apple in the app store. Um, I know from my own personal experience here of building in Web3, we, we completely avoided trying to build a native app. And we're in the gaming space. It's like, you know, the, the risk there is, is is huge. And then Dan Finley, one of the um, <clears throat> one of the people leading MetaMask uh, engineering um, from Consensus, MetaMask being the major, probably the, the number one crypto wallet uh, around, he, he retweeted the, the Coinbase tweet. And then he said, oh, I'll absolutely stand in solidarity here. I assume MetaMask and every other wallet is next. I'm ready to dump the Apple ecosystem. The 30% tax is an abuse of monopoly. Tim Cook has donned the big brother screen. Crypto to to one side, right? You know, we we know from the very well publicized Epic Games versus Apple lawsuit. Um, was that last year, Austin? The the Epic Games lawsuit? I think it was. Oh, was it, mm, or was I, it I 2020? I, I want to say that was 2020. <clears throat> Um, yeah, it might be it all blurs into one, right? Uh, so yeah. we we know from that lawsuit that Epic was was actually found to be in breach of contract with Apple when what they they'd done is they'd implemented an alternative payment system that bypassed the App Store's uh, built-in payment system within its Fortnite app, and as a result, Epic had to, or at least has to, if they haven't already. Uh, pay Apple 30% of all revenue collected through that system since it was implemented, which was around about three and a half million USD. But there was an important additional outcome from this case. The judge in the Epic versus Apple lawsuit issued a permanent injunction that um, iOS apps must be allowed to direct users to payment options beyond those offered by Apple. Hence why they recently, and we covered this uh, a few weeks ago, they released updated language in their terms related to NFTs, where it basically said that any fees created from users within the app would be subject to 30% fees. What's kind of frustrating a lot of people in the space relating to this decision against Coinbase is Apple's just complete lack of consistency. Many payment apps like Venmo, for example, don't suffer these fees. When you think about like, what about your credit card payments that are going through Apple Wallet? What, am I going to like, anytime I use my Amex through Apple Pay, should Apple be getting like 30% of the fees? You know, it gets like very, very strange when you get into this. And it's difficult to see where this ends. I saw a tweet from the co-founder of One Inch, which is um, one of the, if not the leading uh, decentralized exchange aggregate is great product that I really like actually is uh, they, he said in a tweet, uh, one inch wallet lost 70% of its features because of Apple requirements. And it took over six months to negotiate a new release with them. Um, I found it kind of in, uh, quite, quite funny that Zuckerberg then uh, didn't miss his chance to, to chime in and twist the knife a little bit. He said at the, uh, the SBF conference at uh, the New York times deal, but conference, uh, I do think Apple has sort of singled themselves out as the only company that's trying to control unilaterally what apps get on the device. And I don't think that's a sustainable or a good place to be. Uh, some irony in there in coming from Zuckerberg. But, you know, <laughs> where, 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 where do we go 
from here, Austin? You know, like, we, is this actually going to result in like a max mass exodus from crypto and the app store? And even if that does happen, like, will it actually matter? I, I think Apple still has all the leverage here. Um, or does this actually just give a ton more momentum behind projects like, you know, Solana Saga? I, I still, I, I want to caveat all of this with that. I don't think that the Solana phone is going to be like a, a highly successful app, but I think it is a really important product that's showcasing how we can build these things. This, this is difficult, isn't it, Austin? Because, you know, this it's a monopoly you're fighting against. Yeah, you're right. Um, I think this is a tough one. Uh, and I think that you can't over overstate um, the sort of strategic nature of which entities are being asked to pay and which ones aren't. I, I, mm. I, I think that Apple is an extremely powerful company, obviously one of the world's richest companies uh, that, that uh, title is changing currently, <laughs> but yeah. one of, um, and uh, you know, not going up against Visa and MasterCard and PayPal may be strategic um, yeah. versus, you know, going up against crypto versus, uh, going up against Epic Games, um, and you know, it seemed like last week attempts to go up against Twitter for Twitter Blue, uh, mm-hmm. although those were quickly um, walked back. But I, I think that in its current state, it seems to me like Apple's going to be pretty hard to beat on this one. The I, I don't think that MetaMask is going to pull it off if Epic Games couldn't. At least that's exactly. You know, uh, my initial sort of thought. I, I think it's going to bring additional regulatory scrutiny for sure. And there's definitely an appetite to characterize Apple as a monopoly and to use that as an inroad for, um, you know, monopoly busting. So potentially we could see something like that there. I think that Apple's um, reasoning here is gross and that the thought is, you know, well, the, the phone is our platform that we've built and the app store is our platform that we've built. So we, we should charge you to be able to use it. That's just completely absurd. It's like, you know, um, I mean, you think of, about like analogies with your car. Like if, if you were, you know, radio stations were charged to be able to transmit over your radio or if, uh, mm-hmm. y- you know, um, wheel manufacturers were were charged if, if you bought aftermarket wheels and put them on your car because they're you're putting them on that car platform. You know, there's it's just like this doesn't make any sense. Like I bought the car. I bought the phone. If anything, maybe I should be charging Apple <laughs> to right. operate on yeah. my phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny thought, isn't it? Uh <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm in the same camp as you. I think it's going to be very challenging. I think that Apple, to your point, have been very, very strategic around who they're going after and when they're doing it. Um, the public sentiment around crypto is probably at an all-time low. Uh, ever since probably the lowest point it's been since uh, Silk Road, and uh, I, I think with everything that's going on. You know, Apple looking evil fighting the likes of Coinbase and Co. doesn't make them look as evil when they're fighting Epic Games and Co. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, there, there is some very strategic timing around all of this that they have picked. And uh, yeah, I don't see it ending very well, to be honest. But I think hopefully what this will spark is some innovation. And 
and over a long enough time horizon, a breakdown of monopoly, but regulation is going to have to come with, with that. Um, but we're running up to time right now. So what I want to do is like, let's jump, let's jump into the wrap up. I'm going to pull out a couple of positive stories that, that we can touch on. Um, so let's jump into the wrap up. One real quick stat that I thought was really interesting. DeFi and Web3 companies actually managed to raise $3 billion in Q3 of 2022, despite all of the chaos, despite the market conditions. While that's still a drop quarter over quarter, it's around about 24% drop. Year over year, that is actually a gain in funding. And when you consider where we were in Q3, especially near the end of Q3 in 2021, that's pretty significant. I think that in itself is very encouraging. Despite everything, there is still capital flowing in. There are still projects that are being able to build. And I think there is hope for anyone building out there that you know things still can happen. And then uh, talking about building things, I think this is probably my favorite story, maybe one that we could wrap this up in. Winamp, yes, Winamp, the classic music player for Windows, now supports music NFT playback. I did not think I was going to be saying those words <laughs> in this story. I had no idea that Winamp was still around, but I still remember that beautiful little lightning bolt that I think had that really weird like llama demo at the start that you used to kind of play. Yeah. Uh it's like uh you know it's, I I used to love Winamp when I was a kid. It was like my de facto like media player. So seeing this, one, that it still exists, two, that it's now supporting music NFTs, I'm actually kind of interested to, to, to play around with it and see how it actually all works. Um, but yeah, yeah, a very yeah. lighthearted, I don't think that's the killer app for crypto by, by any stretch of the imagination, but a pretty cool one, <laughs> oh, a, a nice but, bit one. Yeah, it's, it's so cool. And of course, the nostalgia. I think this is for me, the best nostalgic moment since Radio Shack came back as Ratio Shack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a great moment. It was a great moment. And what a great moment to end this uh, eventful week on the Off-Chain <laughs> Podcast. Austin, it's been a pleasure. And as always, see you next week. Talk to you then, Matt. Contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.